All right, um, so we are continuing our series, and uh, tonight is going to be um, somewhat a review. It's almost sort of like a part two from last week. Um, some of it's going to be a little bit of a review of what we talked about last week, and then going to also add a couple of more things. So just to review, the last two things that we've talked about uh, have been this. First, we have, have basically defined the Word of God. And how did we define the Word of God? We said the, God has given to us His Word over the course of human history in really four different ways. The first was, uh, or one way was, uh, is a, a verbal proclamation, literally the clouds opening up kind of thing, where we hear a voice from heaven. We see this several, on several occasions throughout the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament. Um, and so he gives to his people sometimes verbal commands. He tells the disciples in the New Testament, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And it terrifies Peter, right? Uh, uh, they're, they're shocked and, and, and awed. Um, he gives his words to his prophets. He literally says, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. And when they go and they proclaim the words, what they say is, thus says the Lord. They are proclaiming the actual words of God to his people. And God makes that very clear to them. He says that to Moses as well. When he goes before Pharaoh, I'm going to give my words to you. You're going to, what you proclaim is going to be from me. It's going to be just the same as the clouds opening up, essentially. Um, then we also have John calling out in John 1 that Jesus Christ is the, the Word of God. He's the literal Word of God, the, the physical manifestation of the Word of God. No different than clouds parting and, and talking straight to us. Here is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, right there walking amongst us. And then last, we define the Word of God as the Bible itself. Um, the the uh, apostles and the prophets uh, call this written testimony the Word of God. This is literally them transcribing uh, on paper what God has communicated or is communicating uh, timelessly to all mankind. Um, and then last week we talked about the confidence that we have in the canon that is in front of us. These 66 books. Um, there are other denominations, or I shouldn't say denominations, other uh, faiths that, that have uh, added books, and some uh, heretics will take books away and different things like that. And so the question came to, to, to us is, can we be confident in these 66 books that are sitting in front of us? Uh, and of course the answer was uh, yes. I hope the answer was yes as we left uh, last week. We can be confident in these 66 books. Now, I want to dive a little bit more into that and talk a little bit more about uh, some of the things that we believe about the Bible first and then address how the Bible came to be formed, the actual literal written words that we have in front of us, how that, that scripture came to be formed that we could hold it in our hands and read it and all of that, all of that kind of stuff. Because some of the things that we believe about this word that's sitting in front of us there are some cultural objections to it. And so when I tell you what I'm about to tell you as far as what we believe, we have stated as we believe this about the Bible, uh, some of those things, uh, there's some questions out in the culture that we're going to have to answer and we're going to have to give an account for. And sometimes people will bring up to you certain things that are in your Bible that maybe you've never seen before. And certainly we don't have time to cover every single one of those, but I hope that we can at least begin to address some common 
uh, things that are, that are stated about the Bible. And then sometime later, I, I we'll come back to this topic in an, a, sort of an apologetical type overview of how can we, we know we trust what God has given to us and, and talk more in depth about some of those things. We'll cover them in general, at least tonight. Um, so here is one of the things that, that we have uh, proclaimed as a church that we adhere to is something called the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And this is currently right now on our website. The document, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, uh, was composed, I believe it's either 78 or 79. I think the first draft was maybe seven, 1978. And um, a group of people got together and set out to define what the church means when it claims that the Bible is inerrant. And they came up with a, a, a very lengthy statement. I'm not going to read it all, but I'm going to read a couple of points off of this sheet. And you'll see that you'll probably nod your head in agreement uh, with, with the things that they have stated here. Uh, one, God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Yes? I think we can all agree to that. Holy Scripture being God's own word written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Yes, we can all agree to that. The Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by His inward witness and opens our mind to understanding its meaning. Yes, we can all agree to that. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than, it, than in its witness to God's saving grace and in individual lives, right? So it goes on and on, and there's, there's tons of different statements that it makes about, um, about uh, the Bible and its inerrancy. But the point is that we have affirmed this as a church. And, and the, the biggest point that I want to drive home is this is a non-negotiable for all of us. Anyone that calls themselves a Christian, this is non-negotiable. This has always been, the Bible's inerrancy and infallibility has always been um, to the church 100% true doctrine, meaning that everybody that calls themselves a Christian, whether they go to a Presbyterian church down the road or whether they go to a Methodist church or a Baptist church or whatever denomination they belong to, we come back to the core central tenets of the faith. This is of first order importance. If you don't hold this, you're not a Christian. Period. So this is of first order importance to us. Now, what are some of these things? We've already touched on just a couple of them. We'll, we'll define those a little bit more. But what are some of these things that we believe about the Word? First of all, 
that it's not strictly dictated from the mouth of God. And what that means, let me clarify what that means. That means that we don't have the Apostle Paul sitting at a desk and Jesus standing next to him saying, write what I say, at least not always, okay? And here's a couple of things that I want to look at as far as verses. Somebody turn to Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. You can read that out loud. We'll read that out loud. And then another person take Luke 1.1-3. 1, 1 Who's got Hebrews 1.1? 1, 1? Come on now, don't sleep on me. Who's got, you got it, David, David Maxwell. Who's got Luke 1.1-3? 1, 1 All right, Shannon Rowe. When you have Hebrews 1, 1, go ahead and read it out loud. All right. So God's word has come to the fathers and the prophets in various ways. It's not one unified way. Now, we all know that there were times where Jesus even, right, in Revelation, when he tells John the words to the church at Ephesus, write this down, right? And he writes verbatim exactly what Jesus says. Yes, Tiffany. Not strictly dictated from the mouth of God. Yes. So here David reads a verse and it it attests to that very thing, that there were various ways in which God put his words in the hands, as it were, of the people that are writing scripture. Go ahead, Shannon. Read this in Luke. One of the things that is the neatest about Luke's gospel, when you read it from the very beginning, here is a Gentile going about the work of a historian. He literally goes and talks to eyewitnesses. He interviews them. And the things that he writes down are from eyewitness testimony. Because Luke, at least to our knowledge, and I think to Luke's own attestation, he was not there when all of this happened. So he goes and he is able to interview some of these people that he knows that are still alive, that have witnessed Christ's life, and he records it down, and he records it for O Theophilus, which may have been a guy, but in Greek it just means God lover, so it could just mean somebody who's also investigating. We're, We're not totally sure, but Luke is writing this down for our own benefit, that he's saying, I talked to these people, I have interviewed these people, and that's why he can say about Mary, she treasured these things up in her heart, right? Because all accounts are that he has talked to Mary herself and has asked her some of these questions. That's why in Luke, we get a long uh, a long section of what they call infancy narratives, which is uh, basically a, a, a time of Jesus growing up that we don't have in any other gospel. And that's because he's talking to uh, Jesus' own own mother, which is, which is interesting. But it's, it's great. So Luke is actually going about the work of a historian. He's investigating some of these details, and he's putting it down. And so what we, what we understand about the written word of Scripture is it doesn't have to be dictated by God as if it's coming from his own mouth like that. He can use, through the uh, work of the Holy Spirit, he can use people's own personalities, their own investigative uh, uh, practices, all of these things he can use to bring together one word that is inerrant and infallible, right? And so that, that means that when we read Luke, we're going to get a little bit different personality coming through the text than when we read Paul, for instance. We're in Colossians right now on Sunday, and you can see 
Paul makes his arguments, A plus B equals C. I mean, he is very straightforward like that. But some of the other authors are not quite that way. You can see their personalities coming out in the text. And what they produce, what the Holy Spirit produces through them, using their personalities, is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Now, the second thing. Um, these are in, we believe the Bible is inerrant in its original autographs. All right? And we're going to go into this just a little bit here in a second. But the, the Bible is inerrant in its original autographs. There's two parts to this I want us to understand. First, the term original autographs. As the ink came out, okay, they didn't use pens, but you get the idea. As the ink came out of the pen of the original author, what he put down was without error. All right? Now, we're going to uncover that what we have in front of us has known errors to it. And we're going to point those out and talk about how they got there and that kind of thing. But you understand that when Paul, what Paul put down on the pages of the letter to the Colossians was absolutely 100% without error in the original document all right, that he produced. All right. The second part of that is that the word that he wrote down is inerrant, meaning it is without error. All right, I want us to take a look at a few more uh, passages of Scripture. Who will take Titus 1, 2? All right, Jeremy Hoggle. Hebrews 6, 18. All right, Becky. Uh, 2 Samuel, who just raised their hand? All right, Hannah Payne, 2 Samuel 7, 28, if you'll take that. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse 5. Susan Maples, Blake, if you'll take uh, Numbers 23, 19. That'll work. All right, uh, so there's an, there's an underlying premise why this is really important, the inerrancy of the Word of God, okay? So the inerrancy of the Word of God is without error, and there's a really important reason that you're going to see coming out in these verses. Who has Titus 1, 2? All right, Jeremy Hoggle. What do you hear in that verse that's true about God? He never lies. All right, that's a really important point. All right, God never lies. Pin that in your brain. Hebrews 6.18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope. Right. We are taking hold of the hope because God never lies. All right, reiterated yet again, God never lies. 2 Samuel 7, 28. We believe you have promised this good thing to your servant, and the reason we believe it is because your words are true, which echo in the New Testament, God never lies, right? Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. He's a shield who take refuge. We take refuge in God because every word of His is absolutely flawless. Or you might say inerrant. How about Numbers 23, 19? I bet you'll never guess what it says. Go ahead, Blake. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Bam. All right. 
God is not a man that he should lie. So, if we believe that the Bible is the word of God, and we're going out there into the world, and we're proclaiming to the world, this right here that we have in front of us is the word of God. And what does it say about God if it's got errors in it? Right? Yeah, it's all... If it's got errors in it, if it's riddled with errors, then God is a liar, right? then the God that, that gave this to us either is not real or he's a liar. But if, if God is true, if he never lies, then the word that we have in front of us has to be without error. So inerrancy is fundamental to the Christian argument that God is perfect and true. This is something that can never be let go. And you will be amazed you will be absolutely amazed as you do a survey across churches today how many are either slowly or quickly letting this go. Now, it's one thing to come together and have debate about what the words on the page mean. And there's, there's to, to a big degree, that should happen in a church. Let's talk about what this actually means. And there's some argument to be had. But... You can tell the people that are wrestling over the text. Is that what it says? Is that what it means? And the people that are going, eh, and fudging on the whole truth of the gospel to begin with. Well, as soon as you begin to let that go, you will see everything, all the other dominoes start to fall as well. You've probably seen it in church after church after church. That as soon as you let the inerrancy uh, of the Bible go, everything else begins to fall as well. In fact, if the word that we've got in front of us is riddled with errors, of lies, of falsehood, then we have no reason really to believe anything else. Right? Last, the word is infallible. Now, inerrant and infallible, there's hardly a nickel's worth of difference between the two. All right? But you will hear these terms come up from time to time. Inerrant literally means there are no errors. Infallible means there can be no errors. <laughs> All right? <laughs> so you can tell there's not a whole lot of difference between those two, but inerrant, there are no errors. Infallible, there can be no errors. Um, one of the statements that, I, that I, I really like to help kind of wrap our minds around this, he says, uh, uh, Wayne Grudem says it this way, the scholars who have used the term inerrancy have defined it clearly for over a hundred years, and they, all, they have always allowed for the limitations, listen to this, that attach to speech in ordinary language. And that's really important. When we talk about infallibility, and we talk about inerrancy. You're going to go to the text in Matthew and Luke, and you're going to see where Matthew quotes Jesus. And Matthew says, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven. And then is like a mustard seed. That's one of the ones he uses. Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And then you're going to flip over to Luke, and Luke's going to say, Jesus said, kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And in the Western mind, we go, which is it? Did he say the kingdom of heaven, or did he say the kingdom of God? Which is it? It's really, really important for us. But quotation marks didn't even come around until like 1700. So <laughs> the Greeks had, had no clue about, about putting down a quotation mark. 
or even thinking that that would ever make any kind of a difference. And so when we say infallibility or inerrancy, what we don't mean is that it's so precise that every single, to a scientific degree, every single thing must line up exactly. What we mean is that they're conveying to us the truth of the statement. The true meaning behind the statement is conveyed to us without error. Does that make sense? That's sometimes hard to wrap our mind around, but inerrancy and fallibility uh, are very close to one another. In fact, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy says this, infallibility and inerrancy may be distinguished, but not separated. They go together. We believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word. The way I also think of infallibility is it's incapable of leading me to falsehood. That it is leading me to truth, in other words. What it underscores is essentially, I can trust the word that's in front of me. Those two things together basically underscore to me, I can trust the word that is in front of me. This is what has been believed by everywhere, always, and by all um, that consider themselves Christian. Questions on that? That's the first little section here, so I want to pause. Any questions on that? Good. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so there's there's a there's some difficulty in that. Obviously, uh, there's there's will be different accounts, or there'll be accounts that seem to not line up, or or whatever. Um, what we believe to be true about the gospel is that, or about, about the, the Bible in general, is that the problem, because it's inerrant and infallible, the problem is here. The problem is in my understanding of what exactly they're reporting. And, and inevitably what I always find when I talk to people is that what they're pointing out is not an, iner- an inherent contradiction. What they're pointing out is a discrepancy. And so the discrepancies in the text are reconciled a number of different ways. Um, a lot of possibilities come to light. Uh, and there's very rarely some things that are, that are called into question that don't have a, a very logical good answer to. Um, so I would first I would, I would look at it and say, are these, do these appear to be a contradiction of what happened? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus did not rise from the dead. That would be a contradiction. Uh, this person came to the tomb, this person came to the tomb, is a discrepancy that we have to reconcile, um, right? Whereas the, it doesn't appear to be a, a contradiction. So the first thing I would do is point that out. The other thing is, when it comes to especially like the resurrection, the talk of the resurrection, um, in the story of the resurrection around Jesus re- rising from the dead, coming out of the tomb, people that go to visit him in the tomb, the Gospels record this in somewhat a different fashion. Um, the best way that I've heard it it's spoken of is... Uh, imagine four people witness a car wreck, uh, you know, and a police officer is going to get uh, the details. Um, they, they may hone in on, one person may hone in on one part of the detail, and that was a really big deal for them, and they're, they're talking about that, while another person talks about another thing. And, um, and if, if every person says the exact same words, it, it, they cook their story. They got together, and they all said the same thing, and they came out with the exact same words. But in reality, in all four Gospels, what we have is uh, different authors emphasizing different aspects of the resurrection that are truly, really important. 
Um, and those come out in the whole content of the gospel that they're writing. So, um, it, you know, there are certainly some questions. And there are certainly some things that present to us a real, a real trouble. But what we find is that if you dive back into history, what was a question in 1950 is a settled uh, debate now. And, and the main reason is because somebody went to seminary and got their education. They said, I see that problem, and that's all I want to work on for the next four years of my doctorate. And so they spend four years in the back of a library looking at different texts. And they come, by the end of those four years, they write a dissertation that really settles the matter. And so there's, uh, that's not to say, just because to say the, the word is inerrant and fallible doesn't mean that we know or understand it all. There are some things that I'm like, that's a really good question. And I will tell people that's a really good question. I don't necessarily have the answer for that. But here's what Christians believe, that the Bible that's sitting before us is inerrant and fallible. So I know there is a good answer. I just don't know what it is. And that's the problem with me, not the problem with the text. Does that, that answer the question? I know that's not always great for a scientific person sitting in front of you. but Right. Yeah, and we're going to point out, I'm going to point out some of those in the next section too. Just, just some things that you might want to consider as you're talking about the Bible with, with people. Um, so the question that, that, that comes up is, you know, what do we know about the Bible's formulation? How was it compiled and put together? Now we talked about last time how the canon came about, like how we've selected the books that we've selected and why we believe those books as opposed to other books. But how was the Bible formulated over time? And so um, I've come out with this like, just handy-dandy little, that you're going to be amazed, no doubt, this little presentation that I've got here. Uh, so we have the original author in the first century who, who pins that down. And then what happens immediately we know from both from Scripture and just from church tradition over time is that that word was pretty much immediately copied by a number of people. All right, and then after that, we have the, 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 that word being passed on to, and this isn't particularly true of the New Testament, but true of the Old Testament as well, that that word was then passed on to those communities, which it was then later recognized. This is the writing of an apostle, so they copied it down. And of course, they don't have a Xerox machine, so they are very uh, copiously writing down, making sure they notate every single thing that Paul originally wrote down or whatever copy they have. And then on and on from the 2nd to the 3rd century to the 4th century to the 5th century and beyond, uh, all of these things are copied. Now, we don't have Paul's original letter to the Colossians. We don't have Mark's gospel. We don't have anything that is original to the author. Right? So what you're holding in front of you is not the original penmanship of the Apostle Paul or any of the other writers. What you have is a fragment or pieces of fragments of the word that they wrote. So what happens is we find all of these things in the dirt basically throughout history and they compile them all together and from all the compilation we have all the words of scripture. That's how many of these fragments and pieces, in some cases we have whole books 
of people that we found. But what we do is we find them, and they date back as early as the second, uh, the second century. We have a couple of things in the second century, but then on we find some more in the third and fourth. And this right here is, a, is the earliest known uh, piece of manuscript that we have. It's called P52, and it's from the Gospel of John. It's from chapter 18, verses 31 to 33. And on it, it says, For us it is not permitted to kill anyone, so that the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was going to die. Entered therefore again into the praetorium, Pilate, and summoned Jesus and said to him, Thou art king of the Jews? That's what that says on that papyri. All right, Or that's part of the verse that it comes from, the passage that it comes from. Um, this is dated between 100 to 150, somewhere in there. So this is really close to Jesus' life. This is the closest we have. And it is about two inches wide. You have that up there? You don't have that up there. It is about two inches wide and about three inches tall. T-tiny. All right? Very, very small. We have a lot of these. They're labeled P-whatever, and they're fragments of the gospel that have been, they'll take them, they'll translate them, and then they'll figure out where that occurs in Scripture, and they'll realize this is from a little tiny fragment from the Gospel of John. Now, uh, so we have this on throughout the second, third, fourth, uh, and then fifth century and beyond. We have tons of these over the course of history. And one thing that's true about the Christian is we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to ancient texts. Um, so we have, uh, there's, I think of the Greek manuscripts, there's 5,600 either fragments or entire books that we have in our possession that are copies of copies of copies of copies of copies over time that people just uh, wrote everything down, basically. Um, the, the book next to us, which is Homer's Iliad, has like 15. I mean, it's, in comparison, it's, it's embarrassing uh, of what we have uh, and what we can trust is the word of God. What happened though? How do how do we how do we you know because we, we get some of these things that come up in the in the Bible and there's some discrepancies in the text and what happens is we find let's say a particular uh, author let me get to the point in our presentation we find a particular author in the fifth century and beyond and what we can do is see some of the errors that he might have made maybe it was a spelling error or maybe he maybe he added a little piece to a verse and what we do is we look back at several of the other manuscripts we found and what we can see is that he made the same mistake that one guy made back in the third century and so we know that the gospel that he's copying down, or the word that he's copying down, came from that original mistake that that guy made back in the third century, right? So we can see where all these errors come from. But not only that, now recently, just in the last, uh, I think it's been the last few years, I think 2012, they found a, a copy of the gospel of Mark that they think is in the first century, which is incredibly close, would be by far the earliest have, which is really very interesting. Those kinds of things really interest me. It may not interest you, but uh, I think that's really fascinating, finding the gospel of Mark. The best part about it is that not only do we have 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts, we have 10,000 Latin manuscripts that are very early. We have 9,300 other manuscripts in various ancient languages. And what becomes apparent as we track all of this, the copying of Scripture, what becomes abundantly clear is that God desired His Word to be copied in the language of people. 
so that they could read it in their own language and know and trust that what's sitting in front of them is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. That's not true of many other books, especially when we come to something like the Quran. Anything that's not in the original Arabic is not authentic. It doesn't want its book to be investigated, searched, scrutinized. But God is not afraid that his word is going to come back to him false. Right? He knows it's true. Copy it, put it in as many languages as possible. Let people read it because in it are the words of life and salvation. Um, and we can trust that. So what kind of errors are we talking about that come up in this text? Well, first, we'll have some, um, some spelling errors and things like that. What we, we see in the text is people are writing, they're copying, and they copy a word, and then they go back, and the next word that they have is from a line that, that happens five lines down, all right? And what, what, what's obvious is that they had the word Z here, and they wrote it down, and they looked back at the word, and they saw another place where the word Z occurs, and they started resuming from, from the wrong place, in other words. So they, they have a gap missing in their text. Or they'll write a word that is not spelled correctly, or things like that. That's about 75% of the mistakes that occur in the text that you've got in front of you that will, will be notated, that we'll find in these manuscripts. Um, another portion is changes that are made that can be that, that can't be translated so there may be a word that's swapped out or something like that that we don't know that word or we we don't we can't find that word anywhere else that we can't actually translate um, then there are uh, meaningful variants so so we find a, a manuscript that has something that is is absolutely uh, variant from another text that we have. We, we don't have this word in the, in the rest of the text, but it seems that this only occurs in this manuscript. So we can't find that variant anywhere else. Does that make sense? You understand that? Um, but the, yeah, sorry, let me back up. We find a variant in a text. So we look in 11th century. Here's a, here's a word he used in this text. We can't find any other manuscript anywhere else that makes that same error, right? So that's another portion of the errors that we find in these manuscripts, is that they simply added a word or maybe took away a word or something like that that is not in any other manuscript. So that makes up 99%, literally 99% of all errors that we know in these manuscripts that have come up are these three, either Spelling errors or just nonsense, didn't put anything down, he's trying to copy, but just didn't copy it right. Um, changes that can't be translated, we don't know the word or, what, or whatever. And then meaningful variants, that it, it would make a difference in the reading if this was right, but nobody else seems to have this, this reading anywhere else. All right. The other one, uh, turn to John 7, 53. John 7, 53. And the reason that I bring this up is because this may come up in conversation with somebody. John 7, 53. I want you to look at, um, when you get there, most of your Bibles should have a notation right before John 7, 53. This is the woman caught in adultery that's brought out before Jesus. He draws in the sand. He says, let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And they all drop their stones and they walk away. Somebody read, does anybody have a notation above John 7.53? Will you, will you read that? Go ahead, Mr. Beans. Say it again. Jesus forgives 
Do you have another heading above that, maybe? There it is. Yeah, yeah. What is it? Go ahead, Lori, read it out loud. So here is this, John 7.53 to 8.11, isn't it? Yep, John 7.53 to 8.11. So what we have here in John is a parable or a story, not a parable, but a story of Jesus' ministry where a woman caught in adultery is brought before him. And what's noted in your Bible is the earliest Greek manuscripts and the most reliable witnesses don't have this story in them at all. And this story, some of you may also have a little notation, like a little one with a footnote down there. Does anybody have that? And a footnote down at the bottom? Nobody has that? Oh, you have it, but you can't read it? (laughs) Anybody can read it? What does it say? Oh, okay. That's not the variant I was looking for. Sorry, (laughs) any other variant? That's, That's another one, but go ahead. Yeah, so it's not only that that doesn't occur in, in, in the earliest Greek manuscripts, but that it also jumps around in other manuscripts. They have it, but it, it's in different places in the text. And so there is a, a big question as to whether or not this was part of the original penmanship of, of, uh, of John. Did John the Apostle actually write this down, or did he not? And all of the earliest Greek manuscripts say, no, he didn't. Why is it there? I'll tell you exactly the reason why it's there. Uh, So this would fall under the 1% of variants that we find in the Greek manuscripts. And that is a meaningful uh, and viable variant. It, It really is meaningful. Like It does change our understanding of that section in John, right? It doesn't change our doctrine. It changes zilch to our doctrine. But it does change our understanding of that section of John. So it's, it is meaningful, uh, and, but we can't really account for it. We don't know why it's there, but it is. Um, now, the question is to why. So in, in about the 15th century, there was a Greek manuscript put together uh, from Matthew through Revelation. All right? If you really want to know the name, it's the Textus Receptus. I know we're in a college town, so there you go. <laughs> but it was put together in the 15th century, and uh, there, were some, there, were, there were some significant problems with it. We won't go much further than that, but just say there were some significant problems with it. Um, the King James was originally built off that Textus Receptus. So King James includes this story and really makes, to my, not, to my mind at least to this day, does not make a note about John 753. That may be wrong. There may be an updated version that makes a note about it, but at least the original and, and as far back as I can find did not make a note about that uh, missing in other manuscripts. Well, later we started to find other manuscripts and started to compile other these Greek manuscripts from earlier on, and we started to see this story doesn't even occur anywhere else before a certain century. Doesn't even, it's not even there. So the best we could say is it's probably added somewhere along the way by somebody in the text. But what everybody does, essentially, is say, we'll include it because we're not quite sure, (laughs) honestly. Uh, We're going to make a note about it to say that it's not there. The same is true of the ending of Mark. 
If you go to the very end of Mark, you don't have to turn there right now, but you can write it down and go to it later. Uh, I think it's Mark chapter 16, 11 maybe, and following somewhere around there, it makes the same notation. This doesn't occur in the earliest Greek manuscripts. Um, so essentially, uh, like I said, what, what happens is we start to compile all this research of, of manuscripts that we find throughout history and figure out what the real story is. The best part about all of this is that even with the variants that are meaningful, which only make up 1% of the variants that are in the text, even with all of that, we're confident that what we have in front of us, that our doctrine would not change one ounce. Not only that, we absolutely know what those variants are, and in 99% of those cases can account for every single variant. With the 1% that we don't know where they came from or why they're there, they don't change anything about our doctrine. When uh, Dan Wallace, who is the basically the guy on this topic, uh, Dan Wallace, he's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. <clears throat> I will say uh, that's uh, my alma mater. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Dan Wallace, who's the authority on all this, he's got some great YouTube videos out there. I'd encourage you to look at them. Uh, good resources for you. They're f- I-, I think this is a fun topic. But anyway, um, <laughs> I'm a nerd, I guess. Uh, but Dan, Dan Wallace uh, is, is very encouraging on this, on this topic. Um, he has said over and over again uh, what we have in front of us is absolutely the Word of God. And in that text in Mark that he got his hands on and was able to translate, um, it still verifies the same faith that we have in, in Mark uh, that's presented to us in Mark or any other gospel or, or book of the Bible. Um, what we have is 40 authors over the course of, you know, a thousand or more years that all testify to the exact same story. Um, there's uh, some of these other uh, meaningful variants. I'm going to skip actually past this. Um, what does this mean? What does it mean for us? Well, it means, first of all, that the Bible is authoritative. That this is the Word of God. It would be the same as if the clouds opened up and God spoke in a voice from heaven. That just as Peter fell to his knees and listened to the word that came out of the clouds, so we should with this text that's in front of us. We should listen to it the same way. It's authoritative. It governs our lives. If the Bible doesn't say it, then it's not important. God didn't want us to obey that, whatever it is. If the Bible does say it, he did want us to obey it. Um, Right? It's authoritative. The Bible is clear. That, That basically means that on matters of life and godliness, it's able to be understood by the layperson, by anybody. This is particularly important in this season when we come to celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. That is important for all of us, especially us as Baptists. (laughs) It's very, very important for us, this Protestant Reformation, because what it did was it, one of the things, as I mentioned last Sunday, it got the Bible into the hands of everyday people. And what was believed by John Wycliffe and many others was the Bible needs to be understood, read, and interpreted by the, by the masses, right? And God, God wanted that for his word. 
So it means the Bible is authoritative, but the Bible is clear. The Bible is absolutely 100% necessary. Um, that without the Bible, in other words, uh, we might know some things about God. Paul says in, in just in nature we can know that. But we certainly wouldn't know all that the Bible reveals to us. We wouldn't know enough for salvation without His Word in front of us. That it's absolutely necessary for life and godliness. How does God want us to live? The Bible is necessary for that. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. Meaning, when it comes to living a godly life, it tells us everything we need to know. There's nothing that it leaves out that God would otherwise require of us. It tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness. What does that mean then for us and our understanding or our knowledge of Scripture? One of the things that is, is probably most impactful for me is in thinking about the history of the Bible. So many people in the centuries past have bled and died for these words that you have in your lap. They literally gave their lives for it. And look at how we treat it so often. How little we revere it. How little we actually take it home and open it up and read it to our families and read it for ourselves and study it. How little deference we actually pay to it. And yet people, in, especially in the Protestant Reformation, bled and died for this. Were arrested, put in prison, all kinds of heinous things. And now we come to you know, beginning of the 21st century, America, we read it on Sunday morning, we go back home. It's quickly becoming where the people in the pew are going to have the wool pulled over their eyes really quickly by people in the pulpit. And the main reason is because they don't know if he's telling the truth or not. And this isn't like the 1500s, where People were illiterate, and things. That's, not, that's not the case here. It's just laziness, apathy. That's all it is. Questions, comments, concerns, thoughts? Indifference. Yeah. When it comes, yeah. 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 It's not a commodity anymore. Yeah. That's part of it, yeah, too. I don't know how many young college people are watching Jeopardy. <laughs> uh, Anna, uh, Jeff, no, you don't make you don't make you don't tune into Jeopardy. 
Oh, family feud at least? No. Okay. Go ahead, Jen. So my question is, do you think that it's possible that someone could um, drift away from that truth and come back to it? Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, could he still be a Christian? Yes. But they could yes. even, or they had drifted away from that. Yeah. But I shouldn't stop them from that. Right. He might come back to That's right. And, and not only that, but... No, not uh, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Blake's like, it's not me, all right? It's somebody else. Uh but yeah, uh, yes, so I would say it is possible, as any sin would be, to drift into and to come, to come out of. It should come out in repentance. And, I, and also, I think what's, what's also fundamental, and I think all of you would probably attest to this, that have talked to lost people, uh, before you even really debate the merits of God or Jesus or any of that kind of stuff, you come to the Word and you say, let's talk about what, what I have here in my lap. What is the validity of this thing right here? Is it true or is it not? It's, it's one of the fundamental principles that leads people away, I think, uh, from Christ himself. And so I think it's important to not only that he could come back, but you have to restore that word to him and say, oh, what we have is the inerrant infallible word of God. And I, I've so far I've yet to meet a person that really believes that this is the inerrant infallible word of God that hasn't also come to Christ through it, right? Um, we believe that about the scriptures. Not only is it uh, authoritative and clear and necessary, but when you read it, and I think all of you would attest this, when you read it, you come to the truth. Like it, it, it actually, the Holy Spirit inside you testifies to the truth of what you're reading and, and brings you closer to Christ. So um, not only do I think that's, that's possible, but I also I just want to be clear, it, it's sinful because it's essentially calling into question God's truth. That, that God speaks lies is what essentially they're saying. And so that's a, a terrible view of God and, and should be confessed and repented of. Yeah. So, but yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. And it's not like, it's actually um, a professor that I had um, yeah. who's at a Christian university, but then um, has, at, he did believe the word was inerrant, but has since gone away from that. Mm. And now, Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Mike Porter. Yeah. Um, you mean the message uh, paraphrase? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, I made it a point a while back, and I, I saw a tremendous impact in just even just in counseling situations when people come in, is to say, well, first let's open up the Bible and let's see what God's Word actually says about this, and let's let's talk about it on the grounding of God's Word. So, first and foremost, if you have two believers in front of you that both believe this is the inerrant infallible Word of God, it should be the centerpiece of that conversation. Like, well, let's not just talk about our own opinions. I think what you, what you're kind of getting to. Let's ground it in the Word. Let's see what it says. And let's let our opinions be formed by the Word itself in front of us. Um, when it comes to the, the message, boy, uh, <laughs> there, that's a, 
there's a big, there's a lot of things there. Uh, the message can be beneficial as it, <laughs> he said as a doorstop. Uh, yeah, the, the message can be beneficial so long as you understand what it is. It is a paraphrase. It is not a translation of God's inerrant, infallible word. All right? There's a difference between a paraphrase and a translation. A paraphrase is saying, this is the gist of what he's getting at. A translation is saying, these are the words he used. All right? <laughs> so you determine what it, what it means. So you have to understand that what you're reading in the message is somebody's interpretation of what that word means uh, to a larger degree than a translation would be. So I think when, when we, we understand that, there can be some benefit to the message, especially in that um, there's a, uh, it, it's essentially kind of like reading somebody's comments on Scripture, like a book that we would read. We just can't treat it in the same, to the same degree as we would um, the Bible itself. Right, yeah, yeah, that's right. And, uh, and, and, I, and I think as far as biblical translations go, um, we have plenty of good ones that are readable and are, are true to the text that are trustworthy and good. And I don't think you should, with your children or with people that are non-believers or whatever, I, I don't think we should turn them over to the message just because that's easier to understand. We should sit down with them read with them the ESV, the NIV, several of these really good translations, and say, this is what I think that means, and here's why. Um, I think we give the message because we're scared to do that, and we shouldn't be. Go ahead, Jeannie. Um, it just sounds like yeah. Start with the Bible. I, I do, every time. I, I, it's, uh, I say that, it's, it's okay, I think, to engage into argument of look at what's around us and, and apologetic arguments about the existence of God. You're going to very quickly realize you have to get back to the Scriptures or you're not going to make any ground. Once I can put before you the Word and say, let's talk about what we have here and how we got it. Let's talk about the apologetics of how we, how we got the Word, uh, the Bible in front of us. And then let's see what its merits are. What, what have people believed about it in the past? Is it true? Can you point to things that are, that are in error in it? If not, well, then let's see what it says. Let's go through the book of John and see what you find about Jesus in here. And I found that to be the most successful of anything. If, especially if you have time to sit down with people and read it, for sure. Go ahead, Sean. He works through imperfect men. And what's the difference between the first step and the subsequent steps? You mean like Paul and then the subsequent steps is that he recorded it first time correctly. <laughs> there, there were no errors in his transmission because that's coming from his mouth. All right. Um, the errors with us. 
so honestly, what I do is quickly say he works through infallible men, or he works through fallible men, fallen men. Let's talk about our own fallenness. Let's deal with that, right? Let's talk about how we got there. That gets me right back to the beginning of the gospel. God is perfect. I'm fallen. I need Christ. He provided him. Judgment's coming. And I get through the steps of the gospel. Yeah. Thousand years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and we're also talking about the core things that make one a Christian or not. What are those core things? What we have handed down to us now uh, in regards to those core doctrines that we believe, Jesus Christ, Son of God, uh, fully God, fully man, uh, eternal, um, those kinds of things, we don't have errors on those. Those are abundantly clear over the course of the entire transmission of any of those things. And so, um, so yeah, I, I think all of those, any of those things you can point to. But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly get to, you know, very, uh, very quickly just kind of say God is infallible. He recorded it the first time without error. Since then, we have obviously copied mistakes. But we know what those are. It's not like we don't know them. Yeah, yeah. At the, at the end of the day, it's you can you can testify to the truth, and they'll either believe it or they won't. Offer it. Present to them the choice. That's all we can do. Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for um, this room of adults willing to show up and just uh, deal with what we have in front of us in this Word. We're grateful that you have spoken. Um, in time and space to us and have left us your